On today's episode of the LNL podcast, Brandon and I have the honor to talk with Dr. J.T. Turner about the doctrine of the resurrection and the intermediate state. We discuss questions from what is the resurrection and why does it matter so much to is the intermediate state something we should really believe? And if not, does this impact confessional standards and how we should think about those? You're going to want to listen to this whole thing. It's excellent stuff. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And we are thrilled today to have Dr. J.T. Turner on the podcast to discuss the resurrection and the intermediate state. I think probably more than anyone he's been thinking about the intermediate state uh, that I know of. And we are really, really looking forward to hearing uh, from him on this topic. Uh, Before I let him introduce himself to you guys, I want to give a little plug for his book on the resurrection of the dead. Um, You definitely should check this book out. I read it, I don't know how long ago, and it is a fine piece of analytic theology, uh, of doing theology the way I think it should be done. It's clear, it's helpful, it's very descriptive, and he didn't pay me to say any of these things. Um, I I, I did not. (laughs) I think it's, it's tremendous. Now, I think some of our listeners are probably going to go on Amazon and say, wow, I can't afford that book. So what I tell you to do here up in the front is if that's the case, tell your library to buy the book and borrow it from the library. Because I really think it's very, very interesting. You may not agree with all the conclusions, but I think you're going to be edified and benefited from reading it. So JT, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for those who may not know who you are or may not be super familiar with you? Right. Well, uh, thanks, Jordan and Brandon, for having me on the podcast. And thank you, uh, I guess, especially for the shout out for my book. For my book. Uh, that was uh, nice to hear. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you've read it and enjoyed it. Uh, one thing about the price, I do know that Rutledge, when they publish books like that, they do a hard copy uh, bit or not a hard copy, but a hardback version first at that price, specifically because they assume libraries are going to buy it and so on. That's not that price is not aimed at uh, the individual consumer. The the later paperback version will be, which would, Lord willing, will come out in about uh, six months. That sort of thing. Um, so, in any case, uh, so uh, uh, a little bit about me, I guess. Right? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, boy, where do I begin? Um, so uh, my wife and I, uh, my wife Bethany and I live uh, and work in Anderson, South Carolina. Uh, I'm a, an assistant professor of philosophy here at the local university, Anderson University. Go Trojans. Uh, it's, it's our homecoming weekend. So we're after this, we're actually heading out to a homecoming event. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've been doing the analytic theology, systematic theology, philosophy of religion gig for... Well, I guess the last 13 years or so, I went to graduate school starting in 2006. uh, And, you know, I took my sweet time getting through graduate school. I did a couple of master's degrees before the PhD. And so it took me nine years essentially to to finish up and be, you know, fully qualified to research and teach and all of that. Um, But uh, yeah, so just through those... uh, through those degrees, through the various uh, areas of study, I sort of stumbled upon this particular research niche in uh, really the bodily resurrection and thinking a lot about that, thinking about its importance for Christian theology, and then in 
the study of that topic, I ran into this particular puzzle or problem that I think uh, arises when one thinks about, uh, well, the Christian doctrine of the intermediate state, if you want to call it a doctrine, but the sort of normal belief in the intermediate state, which I guess we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, that's sort of the long and short of it. Uh, I can tell you, we, we don't have any children. We live here in Anderson with uh, our, our dog, a West Highland Terrier named Theo or Professor Theophilus Turner. <laughs> um, I enjoy uh, most things sports. I love college football, especially the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. I'm a big ice hockey fan. I played ice hockey through university. Oh, nice. Um, I'm a Washington Capitals, a Washington oh, Capitals not nice. fan. I really love oh. golf. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. we're a Canes fan. <laughs> yeah, I, we could talk about games from last year. If you want to. Right, right. So I, I, I wondered if y'all were Canes fans, given the North Carolina connection. I'll forgive you for that. Um, yeah, had we not won a cup two years ago, I might be more bitter. But, you know, not, not, yeah, now that we have one, I'm, I'm okay with it. So why don't we go ahead and just jump in on the deep end right now. Uh, why don't you define the resurrection for us and give a little explanation of why it's so important? Yeah, good. So um, the, the definition of the resurrection, so the way that I understand the Christian teaching on the bodily resurrection, uh, and what I'm about to say is oddly uh, at odds with at least some um, Christian thinkers now, particularly in the analytic philosophy circles. Um, but the way I understand it is the way I uh, think that, um, say, first century Christians and um, maybe first century uh, BCE Jewish folks thought about resurrection, or at least some of the Jewish folks, maybe the Pharisees and so on, um, thought about resurrection, namely that the organism that dies and we put into the grave, that organism has to come back to life. Uh, and that's for a number of reasons, uh, but I just think that the word resurrection, the Greek anastasis, just means to stand again or to stand up again, that sort of thing. So what we're, ta what we're talking about is a numerical identity between the organism that dies and the organism that rises again. Um, I don't think that it just has to do with uh, the coming to life again of a human person. I mean, I think, I think it can mean that depending on what we mean by human person. The problem is that human person sometimes uh, comes out vague, particularly when you're talking with people who are, say, uh, in the metaphysical language, uh, a lingo, substance dualists, where they trace the human person to the human soul. And they just go, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm resurrected insofar as I grab another body or whatever, whatever and live again as a, a bodily being. But I, I take it that the Christian doctrine of resurrection uh, traces the numerical identity of the body. It's a resurrection of the body, um, the one that you know I live with and you live with here on earth and so on. Now, the, um, I think that's important for Christian doctrine for, man, a host of reasons. Um, but the long and short of it is, well, there's, there's two that are sort of the long and short of it. No, number one is, macrocosmically speaking, I think that the God of Christianity, Yahweh, the triune God, uh, that God's plan for the entire cosmos is not to wad it up and throw it away and start again when Jesus returns, but it is to set everything in this creation, the entire creation, not just earth, the entire creation right, that there will be as it were, a resurrection of this dying cosmos into new creation. 
And that's a qualitatively new, not numerically new creation. And I think that the bodily resurrection of humans is a microcosm of that, um, that, you know, part and parcel of the renewing of uh, the dying creation, if you like, is to um, bring to life again those vital parts of the creation, namely human beings. Uh, so that's kind of the two bits. Now, I think we, we Christians in particular, see this happen uh, in the resurrection of Jesus, like his body, the body that went into the tomb, is the body that walked out, it's the body that St. Paul says, look, if that thing didn't come back to life, then, well, uh, so much the worst for uh, everybody. That's that's very helpful. So in you kind of drawing out this, I almost it seems like a problem for those who would be what are called substance dualists um, because of the necessity of this bodily connection. Um, I know in your book, you draw several conclusions from 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that kind of, I think, make this problem, I guess, apparent. So is there, could you walk us through what these, these conclusions from 1 Corinthians 15 are that you think every Christian must affirm if they're going to actually agree with what Paul says there? Yeah, so the way I understand Paul's argument to work in uh, that chapter is um, not as some people would take it, that there's something apologetic going on about uh, the risen Jesus, namely some kind of epistemological move that, well, look, if Jesus's body didn't rise from the grave, then his disciples would be in doubt that Jesus was alive or something like this. Uh, I think actually something more fundamentally important um, and metaphysically robust is at stake, namely that if, if, if the body of Jesus doesn't come back to life, Jesus doesn't come back to life. He's just dead. Uh, and of course, if he's just dead, uh, dead people don't do anything for anybody, least of all save them from their sins, right? This is one of my, not to get off too much of a tangent, but this is one of my sort of bugaboos with some Christian uh, teaching where the emphasis is always like, Jesus' death on the cross saved you. His death, his death, his death, his death, his death. And we only talk about resurrection on Easter. And I'm like, y'all, uh, if you don't mention the fact that Jesus has risen from the grave, this is just bad news. Um nothing happens with a dead man. I mean, dead men don't do anything. In any case, uh, that's that's what I think that uh, Paul is, is suggesting there. And if he's suggesting that without the resurrection of Jesus's body, we don't have Jesus alive again, then at the very least, uh, substance dualism, this metaphysical notion that human beings are two independently operating substances, an immaterial soul and a material body. And I say independently operating, not in the sense that they don't work together, but in the sense that they don't need each other to exist. Um, if, if that view is right uh, about the human person, then what Paul says in his argument about Jesus's resurrection being necessary for Jesus to be alive it is a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Uh, because his resurrection really wouldn't tell us anything about where Jesus is alive or dead, qua human, uh, which is a fancy Latin way of saying as human. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yes. that makes yes. total sense. So all of this has obvious impl implications, you know, uh, with the intermediate state. So can you define, and I think the intermediate state, it's fair to say that's the um, 
the prevailing view amongst most Christians. So can you define the intermediate state for us and then give us your reason why you do not think it's wise for a Christian to hold that belief? Yeah, so um, I want to be careful with how I say this because I don't – because, look, I mean, you're right, uh, Brandon, uh, that – the intermediate state view, at least the one that I sort of attack in my book, is the predominant view in Christian history. So I'm, I don't want to sit here and paint the Christian tradition as being foolish uh, with respect to life after death. Um, but I do want to say that uh, the throughout tradition, I mean, you can see it even starting with Irenaeus, if not before, even into Augustine, who you know, affirms pretty robustly an intermediate state uh, through Martin Luther and various others. There's this internal tension between the importance of the bodily resurrection uh, and this doctrine of the intermediate state. Now, what's the doctrine of the intermediate state? Well, it depends on who you ask. Um, w- broadly speaking, it's this idea that uh, the dead human is existing in some place or other between her death and her resurrection. So usually this is couched in terms of a disembodied soul going to be uh, with, well, usually couched in terms of going to be with the risen Jesus in heaven. Uh, now, through the tradition, that gets parsed out in a number of ways, but the, uh, the most popular way of thinking about it is in this robust notion. Like, I mean, you can compare what should be really uh, really different sorts of documents, documents that should, at least uh, in popular piety, are taken to be um, representative of completely opposite views of the Christian world, namely the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church and the Westminster Confession, Confession of Faith. And you can look at both of those kinds of documents and you can see how they paint this disembodied state. And the disembodied state they paint it as this robust, amazing, perfect plane of existence, all before the bodily resurrection. So here we are, a de- supposedly the dead human being goes to be with Jesus or goes to behold the face and light and glory. That's a beatific vision sort of uh, language. And it's just this wonderful paradise. To which my simple question is, okay, so... Why does Paul seem to think that without the bodily resurrection, we are all, uh, how do I want to say this politely? Um, Well, it's not good. In fact, it's really, really terrible if there's no bodily resurrection. (laughs) Uh, So that robust doctrine of the intermediate state is my target. Now, you could could take softer views on the intermediate state. You could have uh, things like um, some notion of purgatory, or some notion of soul sleep or something where, where if you're going to compare that disembodied life to, say, this life, you're going to want to say, I think, if the bodily resurrection is going to play its important part, that uh, whatever that disembodied state would be, it wouldn't be a good one. It would be quite bad. Uh, now, my, my uh, defense of the tradition for why I think they've got at least... Uh, something important right about that robust version of the intermediate state is that I really do think that the New Testament, at least, teaches teaches that when at least Christians die, they go immediately to be with Jesus. And that's got to be a great plane of existence. 
the question is, what is that plane of existence? That's helpful. So I'm curious why, if you have a reason or if you have a hunch of why so many Christians find this traditional understanding of the intermediate state so intuitive. So this idea that it's this angelic perfect place, uh, and it's almost like, why would I even need a bodily resurrection if I have this? Though, when I think back to my own context, I think well into high school, I had no idea that the intermediate state was even a doctrine. Uh, my reading of the text didn't never compute it. And then somebody mentioned this idea of paradise and I thought he was a lunatic. But then when I studied it more, I was like, oh, well, that seems really intuitive. So is there a reason that so many of us Christians think that this should be the way we understand the text? Yeah, so I think there are probably a couple of reasons. I, I think uh, one, um, sort of sitting in plain sight, uh, so I mean, uh, so in plain sight that we just don't we don't even notice it, that it's there, is that most of us, at least downstream from Descartes, uh, just assume something like substance dualism, uh, that we take it as entirely plausible that we can exist without our bodies, right? If you watch movies like Freaky Friday or whatever, no, nothing about that strikes us as metaphysically impossible. It's not, it doesn't appear to us as if we're watching nonsense, even if it is, you know, super fictional or whatever. Okay, so we have in the background a kind of substance dualist ontology with respect to human persons that's just pervade, uh, pervade, uh, pervasive in normal, at least Western culture. I can't speak to the East, but at least Western culture. So that's there. So we already sort of take for granted that we can survive our death. Now, if we take that view, which Jordan, it's odd that you, uh, I mean, I guess that's kind of cool, but it's a bit odd that you approached the text uh, originally not seeing an inter intermediate state. I can only tell you anecdotally from my behalf as a, you know, just as a young person reading through the Bible, it never occurred to me that there wasn't something uh, before the bodily resurrection. If anything, the resurrection to me was, I mean, just a side note. Uh, I didn't really have a context for it. I just assumed that life after death was this spiritual, however that term was supposed to be meant, um, kind of life. Because I just, yeah, of course, my body dies, I can zip out of here. Uh, whatever that, you know, you got these bluegrass tunes, I'll fly away or whatever. Um, th that uh, th that just plays on popular piety. And I, you know, for the longest time, I, I thought that that was right. In any case, so that's sitting in the background. Now, if you take that sitting in the background and you read the New Testament in light of that, you hear you read the soul language, spirit language. You see Jesus promise the robber on the cross. Hey, look, buddy, you're about to die right now. Well, check it out. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Um, well, that sounds a lot like I'm about to leave my body behind, and I'm going to go wherever Jesus is going, that sort of thing. You, you may have just heard this with your um, reference to the thief cross, but are there any specific passages in the New Testament that you think your view has a difficulty accounting for? Uh, yes. Um, there... Uh, I mean, there's a number of passages, right, uh, that, of course, my, my view is, it's odd anyway, why I, uh, why I take, or the view that I give. I mean, Jordan, if you've, I mean, if you've read the book, um, it's trying to make sense of my idea in light of the New Testament and in light of uh, the metaphysics of resurrection takes a lot of hard work. Um, and so that's another, I mean, that's another reason that the intermediate state uh, um 
is easier to digest is that it just seems to make more straightforward sense. Like I can very much picture my soul going to, you know, wherever, and then God, you know, making some new body or other that I come back into contact with. That all sounds very easy. Um, trying to trying to figure out how our bodies wake up immediately at the eschaton, that's a different task. Um, now, as far as actual scripture passages that the, that, the, that the view has trouble with, I mean, there's loads. Uh, what am I supposed to do with, given my very unique view of how the resurrection works, supposed to do with Moses and Elijah appearing bodily, uh, apparently, at the Mount of Transfiguration, for example? Now, there's a sense in which I want to say my view kind of helps accommodate that because at least it makes some sense of how they're in bodies. Um, I mean, they're not souls there. They're recognized and they're standing. Uh, that's a very bodily activity. Uh, what am I supposed to make of uh, the appearance of Samuel uh, at the witch uh, at Endor? Now, I will say with all of these passages, there's loads of exegetical questions that are lumped into them. But if you just take a straightforward reading of them, what, you know, those are, that's challenging for my view uh, to interact with. And then some people want to point out like 2 Corinthians 5, um, this uh, bit where Paul is talking about how he'd, it, it's much better to be found clothed rather than unclothed, where that's a euphemism for being embodied rather than disembodied. Uh Although in my reading of that text, um, I don't know that that's as difficult for me as some people think. I actually think that it's a, it's a text that, that works in my favor. Uh, but passages like that, and then we've got passages with, you know, uh, Lazarus and Deves, that bit where um, the rich man is, you know, in hell looking up at Lazarus and Abraham's bosom. What is that if not an intermediate state? What do we do with the souls under the altar crying out for justice and revelation? Uh, that sort of thing. Again, I think there's loads of exegetical questions that go in long, uh, go online with that. But invariably, when I trot out this view, these are the passages that get thrown back at me. So I'm curious if you have a one size fits all type of method that accounts for all of these, or is it more of a case by case scenario? Yeah, it's it's usually case by case. I mean, well, I think I don't even want to say it's usually. It's almost all. There it is. Almost always. It's always case by case. Uh, you know, the Samuel at the witch at Endor, for example. Uh, you know, the Old Testament Hebrew context and so on. What's actually going on there? What do we do with whether or not you know witches can actually bring up the dead and so on? There's just loads and loads of questions there. Uh, Moses and Elijah appearing on the Mount of Transfiguration, what are the gospel writers doing there? Are they actually trying to give us a sort of modernist approach to history and painting us an actual picture of what's going on? Or are they doing something else that's supposed to be drawing on, uh, you know, Old Testament typologies and so on? What do we do with uh, the souls under the altar? Well, goodness gracious, uh, Revelation is just chock full of symbolism. I mean, super rich symbolism, but my default mode for that text is not to take most of the activities going on there in a hyper-literalistic sort of uh, fashion, that sort of thing. Now, when it comes down to, say, Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians 5, or for the American audience, sorry, I'm American, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, um, you know, you study overseas long enough, and everybody says the, uh, the, the cardinal numbers rather than the ordinal numbers, and you just get used to it. Um, 
anyway, Second Corinthians five. What what do we do with that? Well, at that point, I want to ask questions like what what is being taught here? Um, is it the case that Paul himself is a dualist of some kind? Well, he was a Pharisee, as far as I understand. What Pharisees believe, they believed in souls. So sure, Paul's a Pharisee or was. Uh, is he a substance dualist? Uh, very likely, but is he teaching it there? Uh, I, it's not clear to me that he is. Um, so there's a part of me that in all in that case, and in fact, all of these cases, I want to ask things like not just what uh, the historical context uh, is, not not only what is you know the sort of linguistic and um, you know grammatical usage and all that stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm not. That's not my only concern. My other concern is, what do I take it that the divine author, because I believe there's a divine author that's behind uh, the scenes there, if you like, uh, meaning to teach uh, Christians. And so, you know, anyways, uh, it, every passage is going to be, to me anyway, um, up for um, its own kind of interpretation. Different methods are going to go in to help figure out what's going on there. Man, so I find all of that super interesting, and there's really a host of questions that you kind of brought out there that I'd be interested in pressing in on. But one question I'm really interested in asking you is, you mentioned Westminster and how there's a really a strong duality there, and it's very paradise-like in their understanding of the intermediate state. Right. Is it possible for those who are committed to confessional documents such as Westminster or the Second London that have these strong duality understandings of the intermediate state to continue to affirm these confessional documents in some maybe modified, modified way, and yet uh, affirm an immediate resurrection such as what you would suggest? Uh, uh, my, my shorthand answer to that is, is probably not. Um, so I, you know, I, I mean, I work at a Baptist, Baptist institution, I'm a member of a Baptist church, I'm happily Baptist, but I'm, I'm pretty comfortable worshiping and I have been a member of a Presbyterian church, especially when we were over in Scotland. Um, and you know, uh, the official teaching of, of, uh, the church over there, the Free Church of Scotland, good, you know, Presbyterians, uh, is to hold within the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, and even though I was uh, acting as an elder, or at least a de facto elder over there, um, they knew that I, that, that, was, my, that was not my position, uh, that I took a disagreement with Chapter 32, and I was allowed to make an exception. Now, my, uh, when I'm in um, contexts that have very robust confessional documents to which the church I'm a part of holds, I, I don't make it, it's not my intent to upset folks in the church. Uh, if, I have a, if I have a platform to talk about it and uh, the congregation trusts me and I trust the congregation, then we can have a, a, you know, a dialogue about these things. Um, but my intent is not to walk into a community that holds to say the Belgic Confession or uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, or heck, even in Roman Catholic circles, uh, you know, try and upset the apple cart. I mean, the re one of the reasons that I write primarily analytic theology in the sort of uh, jargon-filled academic discourse is a bit like the reasons Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses in Latin rather than German. Uh, there's just there's just a time and place for these discussions to happen, and that time and place isn't always in front of the hoi polloi, if you like. I don't mean that in a rude way, but it's just that some conversations aren't meant to have right from the pulpit of a, a particular church. 
And it's not, I mean, it's not for nothing that these confessions hold to what they do. These are very learned men that wrote these down. So as I say, uh, I'm not, my purpose isn't to call, isn't to call uh, all of the Christian tradition a bunch of fools for thinking the way they do. My point is rather to pick out what I think is an important problem that needs uh, more attention. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying, no, I don't think that I could just buy into every article in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, but to be honest with you, that even if I believed in the intermediate state, I, I couldn't take all of the Westminster Confession of Faith as right. I mean, uh, the chapter on the Sabbath, for example, I'm not a Sabbatarian. Um, so, you know, there's uh, there are a number of ways in which I'd have to ha- take exceptions to various things. Um, I'm hopeful that doesn't cut me off the, from the community, uh, but uh, yeah, it'd be it'd be something that um, you know if if you if you if, you know if you're a faculty member on, and you're in Westminster Theological Seminary right now, probably you know you want to consider things before you take on my view. Yeah, no, that's really interesting and helpful, and I I, I really like the way you kind of explained the rationale behind that and how you navigated that, especially at your church over in in Scotland. I think. That's super interesting. So before we wrap things up, I know one of the, we've been talking about substance dualism um, and the, I guess kind of the position you take in your book is hylomorphism um, yeah. of, I guess, uh, a version of hylomorphism. You know, there's various ways to understand it. Yeah. Um, so for those who are really interested in this topic and want to study further, where should they be reading as far as what this hylomorphism is? hylomorphism is, what substance dualism is, and how they function with, I guess, the the eschaton. And I guess maybe importantly, how do you spell hylomorphism with an O or an E? Uh, I spell hylomorphism with an E, uh, H-Y-L-E-M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M. Uh, that's a pedantic point uh, be- because Hule uh, has the eta in Greek, which means matter, I don't know where the O comes in uh, in the English rendering, um, so I, I spell it uh, hylomorphism like that. Uh, I, I'm following a number of people that do that. David Oderberg is a fella who uh, is a hylomorphist. He spells it that way. A guy named Patrick Toner uh, spells it that way, and, and various others. One, uh, in fact, speaking of Patrick Toner, a good place to begin. Well, let me say one thing before I mention that. Popular level treatments of hylomorphism are hard to come by, and uh, unfortunately, my if there are those treatments out there, I'm just not aware of them because I don't traffic in those circles enough. Um, but if you're looking at decent academic introductory sorts of texts for hylomorphism, uh, a guy named Patrick Toner has written a number of papers uh, that um, are accessible-ish. Um, so, for example, I have my intro to philosophy students here at Anderson read uh, a paper by Patrick Toner called uh, Hylomorphic Animalism. Um, but Patrick Toner is a, is a, is a Catholic fellow, uh, so he's got papers on just hylomorphic metaphysics, but he also has uh, hylomorphic papers having to do with life after death and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So he's a good, a good one to check out. Um, Eleanor Stump has... In her book, her big book on Aquinas, uh, spells out uh, a way of thinking about hylomorphism and life after death. And then, of course, the place to start, really, um, at least 
in Christian circles is Thomas Aquinas, uh, the Summa Theologiae, uh, the first volume, uh, question 75 and following is a treatment of the human person in hylomorphic terms. He's just following Aristotle and he tries to work out what, what humans are and how possibly they can survive life after death. So those are good starting points, I think. That's great. Um, and Dr. Turner, you know, we, we've had an absolute blast talking with you um, about these issues of resurrection and the intermediate state. Uh, I know our listeners will absolutely be intrigued and love this episode, as I have loved talking to you. Um, so for those who want to follow you more or follow what you're doing, where can they find you? Because I know you're basically a writing machine. So every time I get a new <laughs> journal article, I find there's J.T. Turner there. I, I don't know how you do it. So where can they follow you if they want to follow what you're doing? Uh, so that, that's a good question. Um, you can follow me, follow me on Twitter of all things. Uh, my handle is at JT Theophilus. So two T's J T T H E O P L I no P H I L U S. Um, there you go. If that wasn't confusing enough at JT Theophilus on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me on academia.edu. Academia.edu is not a great website, but I do post, um, various articles and so on. Um, also, if you are interested in like actual academic papers, there is a great website called Phil Papers um, where I load up some of my work and point to some of my work. And you can also find loads and loads of other philosophers that use that as well. So philpapers.org, I think, is another place uh, to look at it. But um, yeah, thanks for having me on. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, Hopefully this is interesting to y'all and interesting to somebody else out there. Well, yeah, it's definitely been you. interesting to us and it was we're very thankful. Very informative. I appreciate it. Yeah. And again, I want to remind all of our listeners, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists. Uh, and we've had one of the analytic uh, theologians par excellence join us today and JT Turner. And uh, we look forward to hearing uh, your feedback on the episode in the future. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.